would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 John, chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1021. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading His Word. Our great Lord and God, we give you thanks for the truth of your Word, truth which has been preserved throughout the ages. We give you thanks and, uh, and um, Lord, praise and a gratitude uh, for the finished work of our Savior. And as we study your Word this morning, we acknowledge our need for the Holy Spirit Without his sovereign, effective work within our hearts, we would remain blind. We would remain uh, filled with pride and arrogance and fail to see uh, the risen Christ who is clearly portrayed here for us in Scripture. And so we ask the Holy Spirit for your work this day and that you would be pleased to give us eyes to see and ears to hear our need for the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. First John chapter 1, we'll be considering the first four verses together this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now as John writes this letter to the early church, he writes, we could say, as a patriarch as a fatherly figure, as a mature leader within the church. He's a man who has lived for many years in union with the risen Christ. And so it's a letter that is filled with confident hope that the Lord will faithfully work His saving grace in the hearts and lives of His people. And that this Lord who works faithfully in the hearts of His people will bring them on to that final day when they will see him again at the end of the age. Now John is a man who has experienced great hardship and great trial throughout his life. Trial from the surrounding world, a world which is hostile to the message of the gospel. And he has also experienced hardship and trial from those who have sought to sort of come inside of the church and change the message of the gospel in some way to alter it or to water it down. And so as he writes this letter as an aged man, as he writes this letter as a leader within the church, what is his concern for God's people? How does he seek to guide the people of the Lord as they too live in a world which is hostile to the message of the gospel? As they too seek to stand for the truth of God's unchanging world from those who might seek to sort of infiltrate their midst and seek to change the message of the gospel As he ages in his earthly life, as his days on this earth are few, what sorts of words of wisdom does John want to impart upon his fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's the first thing that I want to touch on this morning. 
the purpose for which John writes. The purpose for which he gives this letter to the church. Now back in the Gospel of John, he was clear about the purpose for which he wrote that previous book. At the end of John, in chapter 20, he says, These things I have written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. Now, John did not write that gospel simply with the intent of of recording historical data about the life of Jesus. But he was very selective in the things that he wrote. It's a selective record of the person and work of Christ for a purpose. So that you might believe. So that you might put your faith in the risen Christ. And now as John writes this letter to the early church, what we read here is sort of a twofold connected purpose for this letter. Notice verse 4 here in chapter 1. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And if we were to go to the end of this letter, to chapter 5, we would read in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so in this purpose for his writing, you see, we find this vital connection between joy and assurance. And so here's John's basic logic in his letter. You are adopted into the family of God through the finished work of His Son. And this adoption, through this adoption, you have been received by grace into the family of God. And that now leads to a sure and lasting hope. Hope that eternal life is yours. And it is something that is yours even now as a present possession. And as you understand that you have eternal life now, as you understand your position as an adopted child of the living God, this will lead to great joy in life, regardless of what circumstances might come. Notice that John says that he writes so that our joy might be complete. You see, his joy in the gospel is connected to their joy in the gospel. John is basically saying, dear children in the Lord, I love you so much that my joy will not be complete until you grasp and live out of the hope of the gospel. Your joy in the Lord, your joy in the gospel completes my joy in the gospel. Like a parent, you see, who is only joyful as his child is joyful. Now, Jesus says something very similar in John chapter 15. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As you grow to understand my love for you, you will grow in loving obedience. You will grow in assurance that you are mine. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. And so very simply, why does Jesus teach his disciples Why hold out to them the hope of forgiveness of sins and peace with God? Well, so that their joy would be complete. And their joy is complete as assurance becomes a present reality for them. As the joy that Jesus himself has to share becomes something that intrudes deep into the hearts of the disciples, they grow, you see, an assurance that salvation is theirs. You see, what John wants is for the readers of this letter 
to revel in the glories of the gospel, to draw comfort from this doctrine of assurance, to know with certainty that they belong to the eternal Son of God. Again, that eternal life is something that is theirs now, not something that is far removed, far off into the distance at the end of history. But rather, eternal life is theirs as a present possession. And if that's the case, then that means that lasting joy is something that is a possible present possession as well. And think for a moment about what practical comfort this joy in the gospel, this assurance of salvation brings to the life of the believer. I mean, we enter into this time of the year in which we, there's so much joy spent with family, opening presents and seeing perhaps those we haven't seen for months at a time. And at the same time, as we look back upon a year, we look forward to another year with a level of anticipation, but also perhaps a level of anxiety and fear and worry for what is to come. And when stress and anxiety and worry creep in, it's typically because we have allowed the fears of the future to dominate our thoughts and to rule our hearts. It's that unpredictable nature of the future that can cause great trouble for us. But imagine that you knew the outcome. To know the future would make everything else until that time comes, more manageable, wouldn't it? And so what is our calling? Well, our calling as God's people is to live confidently out of this eternal life that is ours as a present possession. To live with a different identity. To live with a different agenda. To live with a different goal and a different purpose in life. To live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. For that is who we are and that is where we belong. We belong to the kingdom of light, as John says later here in chapter 1. And yet we are surrounded by a world of darkness. And John is fond of using this metaphor of darkness and light to contrast this present evil age and the world that is to come in the Lord Jesus. He says our calling is to hold on to the truth that is a reflection of that kingdom of light. The truth that is certain In a world that is filled with uncertainty, we are to hold on to that which is unchanging in a world that is filled with constant change, a world that is feeding us lies and feeding us false hopes. One of the parents who helps out regularly on Wednesday nights with our senior high large group gathering, he reminds our guys frequently when we meet together towards the end of our Bible study how important it is that we gather together as God's people with regularity where we can hear the truth of God's word. As he reminds us, everywhere else in the world out there, we are fed lies. We are fed false hopes. We are told that that which is good is evil and that which is evil is good. There is so much confusion So much hopelessness in the world around us. And the church is to be a beacon of light holding on to the truth of God's unchanging word. And part of what we need to hear again and again is that if our faith is in the risen Christ, then we have assurance of our union with him. Because you see, when assurance wavers, when assurance is lacking, we are not going to be able to handle the pressures of this world very well. We could call this a a formula for discouragement. 
assurance is lacking and the world around us seems much larger than it really is, we buy into its lies and to its agenda. And then the world is going to seem much larger to us than the promises of God. And if the world around us seems more real or seems more imposing than the promises of God, then we are not going to be able to handle the pressures of living in this world very well at all. But what John teaches us in this letter is that this world, this present age, is passing away. That it needs to be put in its proper perspective. That it is a kingdom of darkness fading away. And it's the light of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that has intruded and is continuing to until that day when it will fill the earth and there will be no more darkness for eternity. Now, you know, during this holiday season, we hear from all of these different texts surrounding the incarnation, surrounding the work of the eternal Son of God come into this world. We've looked at Matthew chapter 1 a couple of times. We've looked at Philippians chapter 2. We looked at John chapter 1 last week. And now 1 John chapter 1 this morning. All of these texts that give their attention to the incarnation of Jesus. And there might be the temptation for us to presume that we've heard the message before. And so we know it's truth. But here is John. Here's the amazing thing I think about this letter. Here is John writing as an old man continuing to absolutely marvel and wonder at the great mystery of the incarnation. Something that he seems to imply he will never tire of dwelling upon. Sinclair Ferguson says, is this thrilling to you or is this just commonplace? Is this just sort of Western American church religion? Well, of course he came and it was manifest. Of course he did that. Why wouldn't he? But Ferguson says, Nothing causes John to wonder as much as this, that the Son of God, who was in the presence of his heavenly Father, face to face with his heavenly Father in a world of majesty and glory and purity and worship and absolute perfection, should come into this world for the likes of me. Ferguson says this is what makes all the difference. No matter what you might face in the coming year, no matter what you might face in the rest of your earthly life, this is what makes all the difference. And it makes all the difference in everything. And so in these first few verses, what John does, you see, is he lays the groundwork for gospel living. He points his readers to the glorious privileges that are theirs in Christ. And as the greatness of Christ is exalted, as the wonder of the incarnation is beheld, assurance of the future, you see, is fed. It grows. And the troubles of this world that we experience, we don't ignore those things, but they begin to recede into their proper place, into the background, into the darkness So that the only truth that remains is the gospel and its light. Well, second, what is it that brings about such joy? What is it that brings John such assurance? What is it that brings him such joy that he wants to impart upon the readers of this letter? Well, it's this message that he proclaims, a message which is a person. 
And this person, Jesus, is first of all the eternal Son of God. Notice how the person of Christ and the message of the gospel are inseparable. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Verse 2, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. This one who is the person is also the message of the gospel. Just as we heard last week from John's gospel, chapter 1. He is the preexistent one. He is the eternal one. He has always been. There has never been a time in which he was not. Colossians chapter 1. He is before all things. He is before all things temporally. He is before all things spatially. He is before all things in terms of his authority. And so this is the starting point of John's message of assurance. For assurance to be a reality in your life, you must understand who this one is. Christ, our life, has eternally existed with the Father. And John goes on. This one who was from the beginning is not only the transcendent and exalted one who was from all time past, but he is the one who has now come in flesh. We have heard him. We have seen him. We have looked upon him. We have touched him. Not only before his death, but after his resurrection from the dead. These are historical facts, you see. These are objective realities. We can know the transcendent one because he has intruded into our world. We have not gone to him, but he has come to us. As John Murray says, the infinite became the finite. The eternal and supratemporal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became mutable. The invisible became the visible. The creator became the created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty infirm. God became man. Why do we need to hear this again and again and again? Because if this is an historical event, then this means the truths surrounding this historical event will never change. And this is what John and others who saw the risen Christ are bearing witness to. You see, there is an unbreakable connection between the person of Christ and the work of Christ. You cannot speak of one without speaking of the other. You cannot speak of the person of Jesus without also speaking of the message of Jesus, of who he is, and also of why he came. Without this understanding of his identity, you will never understand his message. And so in John's time, what was happening was that there were false teachers creeping into the church saying that the Son of God just appeared to have flesh, The notion was that this world is inherently evil because it's made of matter. And if the transcendent one came into this world, he could not take matter upon himself or he would be corrupt by such matter. And so those who saw him just thought that they saw him. He was perhaps sort of a dense spirit or somehow made himself visible, but he certainly didn't take on flesh. And this developed into an early church heresy called docetism or docetism, which was rightly condemned. Because if Jesus never took on real flesh, then there is no real redemption for us. And we are still lost in our sins. This is why John is so adamant in emphasizing the historical reality of the incarnation. This is why he covers all of the senses in perceiving the reality of the incarnate Son. We heard him. 
We saw him. We touched him. We looked upon him. Let me say this again. You cannot separate the person of Christ from the work of Christ. When there is confusion over the person of Jesus, there is nothing left to his work. When Jesus becomes something other than fully God and fully man, then the message of the Christian faith changes as well. If he is just a man, well, a virtuous man, a loving man, a kind man, a patient man, but a man nonetheless, if he is just a man, then Christianity becomes sheer moralism, and there is nothing left to substitutionary atonement. Within every generation since the ascension of Christ, the church has had to fight against some sort of distortion of the person of Christ. Every generation has tried to reinvent Jesus, but any alteration to his person creates a misrepresentation of his work. This is why John's message here is so important. It is a letter from an eyewitness, from one who heard Jesus firsthand, who saw him with his very own eyes, who even touched the risen Lord. Now, why is this important for us when we leave this place and we go to school in the coming weeks or we return to our work tomorrow? Because every time you read the news or you listen to the radio or watch television, the message that you are bombarded with is this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as it brings you peace, as long as it brings you comfort. You can believe whatever you want. In fact, you can believe in whatever Jesus you want to believe as long as your personal Jesus isn't offensive to my personal Jesus. This is all part of the lies fed to us by the world around us. And we ought to simply say, enough. John makes no allowance for this type of concession. These are objective truths about the person of Jesus, and they cannot be altered. The Christian faith is not true because it helps me. The Christian faith is not true because it gives me peace or gives me comfort. While it might do those things, but it is true because it is true. It is true because it's grounded in history. It's not grounded in philosophical speculation or ethical teaching. It is grounded in truth. It is grounded in the person and work of Jesus. And this is what John is bearing witness to. If Jesus did what history says he did... And if his person cannot be separated from his work, then Jesus did these things, you see, whether you believe them or not. God does not need for you to agree with him in order for his truth to stand. Jesus has revealed himself clearly. There is no mystical, unexplainable experience required. This is not something that is reserved only for those who have a certain level of intellectual capacity. This is history, and it is for all to see, it is for all to hear, and it is for all to respond to. And if the person and work of Christ cannot be separated, then you will be judged based upon your response to the historical Jesus. If he is who he claims to be, then there are immediate implications for your life, namely faith and repentance, because the eternal Son of God coming into this world shows us the impotence of the human race. It shows us that nothing less than the eternal Son of God coming into this world could save you from your sins. And the call is for you to humble yourself before Him, to lay aside your pride, and to look to Him in faith alone. 
John Piper says that many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a mere spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. This is the message that John proclaims. This is the message that we are all called to heed. Well, third and finally, what is the result of this message embraced? What is the result of believing what John says? What is the result of putting your faith in the risen Christ? Well, again, there is the assurance and joy that comes that we already touched upon, but there is another result, and we see it in verse 3, that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, what is this concept of biblical fellowship all about? We could describe fellowship as a personal, intimate experience. It's an aligning of commitments and convictions. It's a genuine love toward one another. We could say that it's taking the objective work of Christ, these things that John speaks of, in which Jesus accomplished in time and in space, and it's taking that work of Christ and applying it subjectively to our own lives. And there are two levels of fellowship that John talks about here. There is first fellowship with the Father. It is through the work of His eternal Son that you are brought now into this intimate relationship with Him. You are enabled to call Him Father as an adopted child in the family of God with the Lord Jesus as our elder brother. He knows you perfectly. He knows you without fail. He knows you better than you know yourself, and yet He loves you completely in His Son. And such confidence of this relationship leads to peace and comfort and hope. Such confidence of fellowship with the Father feeds that assurance, that assurance that is so vital in the Christian life. And so fellowship with the Father means that there is a longing to bring our will into conformity to the will of the Father. It's never an attempt to take the will of the Father and bend it to our own desires, but it's a longing for His will to be done, just as we pray every Sunday morning in the Lord's Prayer, that our longing and desire is to submit to the will of our Heavenly Father. There is a desire to love the things that He loves. And very simply, we discover the things that He loves as we grow to understand His Word as we study His Word, as we set the affections of our hearts upon the things that He loves. And John also speaks of fellowship with one another. The work of Christ applied to the life of the believer leads to true biblical fellowship. But what does it look like to have fellowship with one another? Well, true fellowship with each other means growing in like-minded conviction. The way that we grow in like-minded conviction is that we don't simply focus upon our own preferences, you see, but we look to the objective truth of God's Word. And we seek to formulate our living, our belief, our convictions all around that truth that is external to us, formed by the truth of God's Word. Fellowship looks like a mutual love for one another. As we love God's Word, there is unity growing amongst us as God's people. Caring for one another. 
seeking to involve ourselves in the lives of one another. The New Testament simply knows nothing about living the Christian life independently of one another. A life of growing fellowship is necessary fruit of the gospel in our lives. And so do you long for fellowship? Do you love the church of Christ? Do you love gathering together and meeting as God's people? Do you love those that the Lord in His sovereign goodness brings into our church family? Or instead, do you tend to have sort of a hands-off mentality that keeps you at a distance and keeps others from intruding too much into your life? As you look at those in the church around you, do you simply focus upon how others are different than you? They are married and I'm not. They have children and I don't. They have a stable job and I don't. Do you only focus upon those differences isolating you and keeping you from one another? Or instead, do you focus upon that which we have in common? Our love for the Lord Jesus. And we love one another because He has first loved us. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 24 and 25 are just sort of a classic passage in instructing us on what it means to live in fellowship with one another. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says here. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What a great picture of true fellowship, isn't it? There's an awareness of my own sinfulness. An awareness that I am blind to that sin which seeks to take root in my own life. I'm filled with pride. I'm filled with arrogance. And so I need and I welcome the loving intrusion of others into my life. I need others in my life. True fellowship means that I make it a priority to gather together as God's people, that we might encourage one another, as the writer of Hebrews says, encourage one another all the more. And as we see that day approaching, it's an increased passion for fellowship. And of course, every day that passes brings us another day closer to that final day. If it's a priority for me to meet together, then there's appropriate preparation on my part as I gather with God's people. If it's a priority for me to gather with God's people, then it's not something that's an afterthought. It's not something that I just do if I have time, if it fits within my schedule. But it's something that I make an unchangeable priority in my life. True fellowship is actively seeking to be shaped by God's truth. Allowing His truth to form our thinking, to inform my affections, to allow me to grow in my love for one another. Encouraging one another, praying for one another, growing in our love and care for one another. And again, such fellowship with God and with one another leads to lasting joy in the present. It's really throughout the rest of this book of 1 John that he continues to weave together in a masterful fashion all of these different themes that that are just touched upon in this introduction. There was a man in the early church named Polycarp. Uh, Bishop of Smyrna, 
who had this type of fellowship with the Father and with the church. So much so that it produced an unwavering joy in his life. Polycarp was a disciple of John, living in the time of the Roman Empire. And the emperor insisted that everyone burn incense to him as an act of worship. Polycarp refused to worship the emperor, and the penalty for failing to comply with Roman law was to be burned at the stake. The story goes that the emperor really didn't want to burn the old St. Polycarp at the stake and make a martyr out of him. It's just bad publicity. It would perhaps unify the Christians and create a hero for them, making them even more defiant. But the emperor couldn't simply ignore the fact that Polycarp was disobeying the decree of the emperor himself. And so Polycarp was urged by those around him, just burn incense to the emperor. It's surely not something worth dying over. And Polycarp replies something like this, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has been faithful to me. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Bring forth what thou wilt. And so he was burned at the stake. Polycarp was able to take what John is talking about here as he learned, perhaps even sitting at the feet of John himself, taking those things and applying them to his life, sinking them deep into his heart. And we could say that Polycarp had a defiant joy. There was nothing that could take this joy away from him, even the painful and excruciating death of being burned with flames could not rob him of his joy. And this is the type of joy that is possible in our own lives because of what Jesus has done in history. Now again, we've heard of this coming of the Son of God over the last few weeks. But I think we have to really guard ourselves against the presumption that because we've heard it, we know it. Have we really heard it? Have we heard it to the point where it moves us in passionate worship to the Lord? Have we heard it to the point where it moves us in loving obedience? Have we heard it to the point where it drives out conflict and division and differences among us and creates unity and peace among God's people? Have we heard it to the point where it has produced this type of defiant joy in our own lives? And so we would do well as God's people to dwell upon the reality of the eternal Son of God to never tire of hearing such things, to never tire of delighting in such things, to never tire of encouraging one another in our fellowship together as God's called out, dearly loved people. May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of his word and to write it upon our hearts.